Chapter is entitled Lord Krishna's Entrance into Dwarka. We're reading from text 14. We've read a little bit about Dwarka, the beauty of Dwarka. It's a city described with parks. Everywhere you look, you see a park, you see a pond, you see lotus flowers. And Krishna is returning and he's being uh, welcomed by the residents. They put out plantain trees, mango leaves. It was considered auspicious. They had flags, festoons, and signs. Welcome back, Lord Krishna. Something like that. It didn't say what's on the sign, but it said there were signs. Welcome home. Or we miss you. or Whatever. So today we're reading from text 14. Samarjita Maha Marga Vatyat Panaka Panaka Chitbartang Shiktam Gantha Jalaya Uptang Pala Pushpak Shatang Kurai Pakshatan Kurai Samarchita Maha Marga Marchita Maha Chatparam Shiktam Ganda Jalar Uptam 
Balapushpangshatankurai Samarjita Mahamarga Vratyapanakachatparam Shiktam Gandha Jalar Uttam Palapushpakshatankurai Samarjita Mahamarga Vratyapanakachatvaram Shiktam Gantha Jalar Uttam Hala Pushvakshatam Kodai Pushvakshatam Kodai Samarchitam Mahamarga Pushpangshatankurai Samarjita Mahamarga Panakachatvaram Shiktam Gandhajalar Uttam Pushpakshantakunam Kurai Ladies want to chant? Archita Mahamarga Panakachatvara Sitam Ganga Jalarutam Pala Pushpan Sitankurai Ajita Mahamarga Word meanings. Samarjita, thoroughly cleansed. Mahamarga, highways. Ratya, lanes and subways. Apanaka, shopping marketplaces. Chatvaram, public meeting places. Siktam, moistened with. Gantajalai, Scented water. 
Uptam was strewn, excuse me, was strewn with Pala fruits, Pushba flowers, Akshata unbroken, Ankurai seeds. Translation. The highways, subways, they had subways in Dorka. Did you know that? Now you know. Lanes, markets, and public meeting places were all thoroughly cleansed and then moistened with scented water. And to welcome the Lord, fruits, flowers, and unbroken seeds were strewn everywhere. Fruits and flowers, strewn. Just get a big box and throw them. Something like that. Big box of bananas, mangoes. Purport. Scented waters prepared by distilling flowers like rose and kiora were requisitioned to wet the roads, streets, and lanes of Dwarka Dham. Such places, along with the marketplace and public meeting places, were thoroughly cleansed. From the above description, it appears that the city of Dwarka Dham was considerably big, containing many highways, streets, and public meeting places with parks, gardens, and reservoirs of water, all very nicely decorated with flowers and fruits. And to welcome the Lord, such flowers and fruits with unbroken seeds of grain were also strewn over the public places. Unbroken seeds of grain or fruits in the seedling stage were considered auspicious. And they are still so used by Hindus in general on festival days. On festival days. Hare Krishna. So, the city of Dwarka is um, it's an interesting city. If you've read Krishna book, you, you understand that Krishna had enemies. I actually wanted to kill him. He also has enemies today who want to kill him. They're called atheists. Or they think they've already killed him by philosophy. But in those days, they also had atheists and those who tried to kill him by philosophy, but they also had those who tried to actually kill him. They didn't like him. Because they wanted to be him and he was him and that wasn't good for them. So they wanted to get rid of him so they could be him. You know what I'm talking about? You can all say, been there, done that. Yeah, that's why we're here. We've been there and done that. We're trying to be him. That's why we're here. So, Krishna grew up in Vrindavan, and then when he was about eight, although he grew a year and a half at a time, so he was actually eight, but around 11, considered 11 years old, he left was invited to Mathura to be killed by his uncle. He said, okay, I'll, I'll come, you can kill me. It, the tables turned and his uncle was killed instead. 
by Krishna. And um, Krishna promised he would go back to Vrindavan, but Krishna was thinking, well, actually, his parents, Devaki and Vasudev, they didn't want him to go back to Vrindavan. You know why? Because the residents of Vrindavan, Vrindavan loved him so much that they thought, if he goes back, he'll never be able to leave them. So they said, Krishna, you have to go to school. You never went to school. You're like 11 years old. You never went to school. So they sent him to Ujjain to go to the school of Sandipani Muni. Did you know that? Devaki and Vasudev, they decided that. They were really afraid that he would you know, go to Vrindavan and he'd never come back. So then, school is over. They didn't stay that long. They went back to Mathura. It's not Mathura. If you're English, you would read M-A-T-H-U-R-A-S, Mathura, but it's Mathura. Mathura, actually, right? Mathura. Um, so he came back, and then Krishna was thinking, I cannot go back to Vrindavan because if I go back, I will have to leave again. And if I go back and leave one more time, the residents of Vrindavan will die out of separation. They'll feel so much pain, they won't be able to live. Have you ever heard stories of people dying out of the pain of separation? Well, we know Dasarath died from separation from Lord Ram. So that's what Krishna thought. And, and Krishna was thinking, you know, I, I, I need to send a message, but I can't go back. And, and right when he was thinking like that, Uddhava showed up. Oh, Uddhava, he's the right person to go. So it said, Uddhava, you go, give them this message that uh, I'm everywhere, I'm with them, I love you, and so forth. So, there was a king named Jarasandha, and he he wanted to take over Mathura. He was quite ambitious. And he wanted to get rid of Krishna, all of Krishna's family, kill and get rid of Mathura, and get rid of Mathura. And and um, so Krishna thought the other reason Krishna didn't want to go back, he thought, if I go to back to Vrindavan, then Jarasandha is going to follow me. And all his associates, they're going to follow me and they're going to try to kill me in Vrindavan. And when they go there, they're going to kill, they're going to disturb or kill the residents of Vrindavan. I can't, I can't go there. I've got to go somewhere where it's safe. So Dwarka was safe because it's like a, they built a fort and Krishna wanted to protect his devotees. So all the devotees in Mathura, where Jarasam was going to attack, Krishna transferred them. While they were sleeping, they went to sleep in Mathura and they Mathura and they woke up in Dwarka. So Dwarka was created to protect the residents from attacks. So, now, 
Krishna is in Dwarka, and many of you know that he manifested a different feature in Dwarka, the feature of Narayan or Vishnu. And that's the feature in which the devotee understands that Krishna is the Supreme Lord. So now he's coming back, he's been gone, he's coming back, and they're celebrating Krishna as the Supreme Lord. If Krishna comes back to Vrindavan, it's a different mood. They don't celebrate him as the Supreme Lord. So it wouldn't be the way it was in Dwarka. But when I was reading these verses, I was thinking that one theme that comes out of this is how to create a culture of auspiciousness. That's what I was thinking when I read the last verse and this verse, in the verse before. How to create a culture of auspiciousness. And in a few verses back, it described Dwarka. You know, imagine a city in which everywhere you looked, you would see a park. There was no, no direction and no place in the city where there wasn't a park within eyeshot. So I was with Srila Prabhupada on a walk in San Diego in a place called Balboa Park. And Balboa Park is where they had the World's Fair at one time. So it's this huge, huge park, but they built these like Spanish, Mexican-style beautiful buildings for the World's Fair and fountains. And, but it's basically a park, botanical gardens. San Diego Zoo is famous, right? It's part of that. But it's very, very big and expansive. I used to chant my rounds there. And you'd, you'd walk a mile or two and see one or two buildings. So we were on a morning walk, and devotee said, Srila Prabhupada, is this park like... Vrindavan, and Prabhupada said, no, it's like Dwarka. Um, Vrindavan's more rural. So this was nicely manicured park with these beautiful buildings, but mostly park, not crowded. I mean, there's one area of the park where there's more buildings. So Prabhupada said, that was Dwarka. Dwarka was like the city, looked like a Balboa Park, so now get your tickets and go to Balboa Park. You want to check it out? It's auspicious. Um, Prabhupada walked there, so you know it's worth flying out there just to walk there. Of course, Prabhupada was here in this temple, so that's also auspicious. So, um, <clears throat> so I was. I every city I go in, I, I go to. I think two things. Why don't they paint the cement? Because it's ugly. And why don't they put up billboards? Like in England, I saw this. I don't know if they do it now. But they put up billboards that will, will say something to elevate your consciousness. You know, or ask you a question to think, contemplate. Then I went to El Paso. And lo and behold, all the bridges and everything was painted. Like, what? I know it was painted green. What are they? Kind of pink and green or something? Brownish? Yeah, the southwest colors. I was like, and you just go there and you drive there, you feel different than you do driving in a city with just a bunch of big, gray, ugly cement pillars holding up a bridge. Isn't it? Yes, it's ugly. And it makes you feel a bit ugly, doesn't it? At least it makes me feel like that, yeah. And then um, one time Prabhupada was on a train 
So the train's leaving some city in India, and then after a half hour or so, you get in the country. And, and Prabhupada made the re- remark, just getting into the country out of the city, it was like, oh, now I can breathe. Ah, oh, so nice. Do you ever feel like that? Get out of the city, it's like, ah, oh, that was hell. <laughs> you don't know how, how hellish it is to get out of it. Um, it and here, <laughs> it said the streets were scented. Scented water, gandha jalaya is water, gandha is scented. Gandha jalaya is scented water. Prabhupada went to New York, he said, the streets are scented with urine, dog urine and stool. That's what they're scented with. Gandha stool, scented with stool. Um, I guess that's what it smelled like to Prabhupada, or looked like, or both. So, there is a devotee who lives in Mayapur. His name is Bhakti Vidyapurnaswami. And most of the classes that he gives on the Srimad Bhagavatam are about culture. What, what is the traditional culture of India? The duties of the different varnas and ashrams and how that worked and how the kings ruled. And, and it just gets into all kinds of details. Uh, and so one day the devotee said, where did you get all these details? You know, we never heard this stuff. He said, from Srimad Bhagavatam. It's all there. It's all there, but, but nobody noticed it was there. So there's all these cultural items of how society lived when it was in Satvaguna, when it was more elevated. It's there, but you have to read the Bhagavatam with the vision to understand the culture. Otherwise, you won't really see it. It'll slip past you. So culture is important, because culture molds people in a specific way. Any of you who have been to Vrindavan or Mayapur, you know that, <clears throat> that you're a different person when you're there. And a lot of us have this experience. We go to the Dom and we become, we feel almost invincible. Have you ever had that experience? You're like, like okay, Maya's, you know, no, no opponent for me anymore. You know, It's over. She can't touch me. You feel that way in the Holy Dom because of the atmosphere. The culture, um, one of the cultures that is created there is that everybody's a devotee. So even if you want to be in Maya and you want to forget Krishna, it's pretty much impossible because the next moment there's a devotee saying, Radhe, Radhe! Itaigoranga. And Prabhupada said, one devotee said, Prabhupada, the, the land of India, it's auspicious. He said, yes. Prabhupada said, yes, Krishna consciousness is coming out of the ground. It's like, it's just, it per, it's pervasive. And so, when we're in that environment, it's like, we don't have really have any problems, material problems. And we think, when I go back to Dallas, that's it. My problems are over, and it takes between 14 and 21 days before your problems to resurface. And my personal experience, because I lived in India part-time for well, maybe like 13 years going back and forth, and it was like I had one mind in America and I had another mind in India. And when I would go back, either to Maya, I go back to Mayapur, it's like I put on my Mayapur mind. And I come back to America and have an American mind. So why is that? It's the culture. It's a different culture. 
different influences. Of course, here in the temple, we're trying to create a, a different culture. But still, it's different. It's not the Holy Dom. It's the Holy Dom, but different levels of Holy Doms. We could say that. So, when I was reading these verses, I was thinking about the sattvic culture, sattva guna, sattva. One place it is said sattva means to see things as they are. Sattva means purity. Sattva means freedom from passion and ignorance, freedom from lust, anger, greed, and so forth. So, when you create a sattvic culture by, for example, building a city which looks more like a park than a city, then it has a different effect on people. I'll give you another example. This is, this is an interesting example. Krishna Chaitan and I, long ago, we were distributing, we were distributing books in doing some service in Phoenix. And Phoenix has an airport. So our service started like 9 or 10 o'clock. And I said, why don't we go to the airport every morning about 6 o'clock and distribute books? And um, distributing books at airports is it's not really easy unless you're kind of, you have to be a bit outgoing and a, a little strong because you, people are, you know, they, they're going to their gate, they're focused on this or that. So you kind of, you know, if you're just a little light, they'll go, no, thank you. So you, you have to be a little stronger. So this is what happened. If you go out at 6 o'clock, you can be as mellow as you want, and people will stop, and, and most of them will take books. That's why I love going out there. It was just so easy. Around 7.43 and 6 seconds, it changes. Or it was 7.28 and 4 seconds. It just changes. It completely changes. Excuse me, sir. No. Excuse me, sir. No. Whereas two minutes before, excuse me, sir. Yes. Can I help you? Prabhupada said the morning is in the mode of goodness. That's why we rise early in the morning. We take advantage of the mode of goodness. It's well, you know everyone knows it's easier to chant earlier in the morning because of the influence of goodness. So this was so evident. It was like every day at that time. It's like, okay, we can leave the airport now because because it's shifting into passion. And so if you uh, study this, it's act, there's actually time zones of goodness, passion, ignorance, like that. And you can feel it, can't you? Go in, you know. So then Prabhupada said, he said, the country is in goodness. We used to distribute books in state parks, Mount Rushmore, Yosemite, Grand Canyon. It was, it was, um, we were given permission to do this. Complete different experience than at the airport where you don't know what time of day it is. There's no sun, all artificial light, people rushing. As soon as you go into the airport, aren't you, don't you feel anxiety a little bit? I do, anyway. Generally. Where's my gate? Am I going to get there on time? Oh no, look at the security line. It's a, a different mode, right? So, so Prabhupada said, the country is the mode of goodness, the city is the mode of passion, and the bars, discos like that, is the mode of ignorance. And my philosophy is where they're doing rap, 
there's a fourth mode that has not been uh, has not been named yet. That what the fourth mode is, but to me, you know, um, hip hop is kind of like another mode for me. You know? So um, now there's music, art, food in different modes of nature. You can read in Bhagavad Gita, and it affects you differently, doesn't it? Even colors will affect you differently. So, when I was reading this, I was thinking, now look at this city of Dwarka. It's, it's a city which is supposed to be in the mode of passion, but it's not, because everywhere there are parks. So it means um, the people who were designing the cities, and this is interesting, were designing cities in a way which would be elevating to the consciousness of the residents. And the whole system of government that was described in Shastra was that the government should rule in a way that gradually citizens become spiritually elevated. From wherever they're at, they should be elevated. That's that's the duty of the government, to ensure through education, through culture, through how they govern, that everybody, every citizen, just by living under their rule, will go up. As contrasted today. It's much, much different. So, I want to talk a little bit about culture because it's a very interesting topic because culture is not something you necessarily create. It will exist whether you create it or not because you can consciously create culture and if you don't, there will be a culture that exists. And so, in Vedic times, they understood this. They understood the importance of Satwagun. So they created a culture, consciously, thinking. Isn't it interesting? Thinking. Okay, if we build it this way, how will it affect people? If we do it this way, how will it affect people? And so they did things that would affect people in a positive way. In a So... When you create a certain culture, then everyone who comes into that culture, no matter if they're up or down, they get affected by the culture, isn't it? It's, you know, you, you can't avoid it. We all are products of our culture, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So, uh, we went to El Paso for Rathiatra, and devotees were saying, these are like, the nicest people in America I've ever seen. And they, most of them, their parents are from Mexico. Mexico is a different culture. It's more pious. People are more humble. Um, and Mexican people are a little more mystical also. There's a lot of mysticism in Mexico, right? It's kind of a mystical uh, religious place. So the people because it's a religious festival, because they have those roots, they were, they're basically taking the books off the table and is just asking us, how much should I pay you? It was like that. That's the effect of culture. I have a disciple from Finland. I said, so what's the percentage of atheist to theist? There's practically no theist. Mostly atheists. That's the culture. If you're born in those Scandinavian countries, atheism is the predominant culture. It's just, 
just what happens. It's how it is. So, would we be affected by that? You might think, I'm a devotee. Yeah, you would, we would be affected by it. Maybe we wouldn't be devotees. It's, you know, who can say? I mean, we like to think we would. So, then we have what Prabhupada wanted us to do was create a culture within our temples so that when people come here, automatically they go up. Right? Now, how does that work? Well, as I said, culture is either created or it just happens. And if you don't create it, it's just going to happen and you get whatever you get. It's just what you get. And sometimes it's good because you have a lot of very elevated devotees who are you know, more conscious of these things. And sometimes it's not as good. So um, we, did, we did an exercise once. And we asked the devotees, when guests come to your temple, what would you like them to experience? What would you like them to feel? And we made a list. And they said, we would like them to feel that we have knowledge that can help them. We would like them to feel happy and accepted and satisfied. That we would like them to feel that, to see that we are happy. And we made, made a long list. And then the next question was, what do you think the people are feeling that are coming to your temple? And that was a different list. Not that there weren't anything, any things that matched on the first list, but a lot didn't match. And so then we did an exercise and said, well, what would you have to do in your temple in order that people would experience what you would like them to experience? That's how you create culture. Quite simple, but that's how you create culture. And the interesting thing about it is a lot of companies brand themselves. Say, we are blah, blah, blah. You know, we're the best in this or whatever, right? But actually, you can't brand yourself. Your customers brand you. Because when your customers tell you their experience, that's your brand, no matter what you say your brand is. We're the best, and all the reviews are, you're the worst. So your brand is you're the worst because your customers brand you. So we we should never think because we put something on the wall, that's who we are. Just ask the people who come to temple and say, well, what is your experience here? And they'll tell you what your brand is. So I'll, I'll just tell you a story. It's an interesting story. There is a devotee in New York who's professional marketing, branding. And they wanted to brand the Bhakti Center. So we asked them, what do people say when they come to the temple? Because that's your brand. And he said, people say, I feel like I'm home. And if you go to the Bhakti Center, their brand is something like coming home. or Isn't it? I forget. Does anybody know exactly? Your home, coming home. Something like that. Because you know, Stephanie, what it is? Say that again. Yeah, your home. What? Welcome. Welcome home. Something like that. Because that's what people experience. So, it, it's just, it's nice to become conscious. Now, you all have a culture in your house also. Did you know that? 
in one of the three modes or a combination of all three, you have a culture. And your kids will grow up according to that culture. They will be part of what the culture you created. It's just you can't you can't avoid it. Um, uh, my wife and I decided we wanted our daughter to grow up in India, in Mayapur. We thought that would be very good for her, and she wanted to do it. So we let her live in that culture, and it, it had a, a very deep effect on her, a very good effect growing up in that culture. So culture is powerful. And the culture you, um, you create... Your kids, they will adopt that culture. They will, they will be part of that. So we can't minimize the effects of culture. The, and, and everybody knows this, that we become like our parents even if we don't want to. Many, many people say, oh, I'm just like my father. Oh, I promised myself I wouldn't be like him. And now I say I'm just like him. You know? It goes deep. It goes very deep. There was a uh, devotee. He was born in the movement, and he had he had some personal difficulties, and he had doubts about living a life of Krishna consciousness, or at least fully in Krishna consciousness. And they had a meeting, and he said, "There, you know, at a point in my life, I was I was thinking I didn't want to be a devotee, but I got so much Krishna consciousness growing up." I couldn't not be a devotee. I didn't know how to do it. It was it got it was like I was just trying not to be, but it was like deeply in there. It's like I couldn't, you know. It's like for us who grew grew up in the West, you have a hundred thousand songs in your head, right? And even you become a devotee, you don't forget. You know? So he got Krishna consciousness. It went in so deeply, he couldn't. Even he tried to forget it, he couldn't. So we can't underestimate the power of culture. And so what I think is very is very powerful to do is when you read Prabhupada's books, think about yourself, your life, and ask yourself, how does Prabhupada want me to be as an example of an individual culture? Because we're all like individual cultures, aren't we? Like you, you are a, kind of like a walking signboard of culture. When we see you, there's something coming from you, some message. Whether you like it or not, it's true, isn't it? You know, we're all walking billboards, aren't we? So, when we read, well, at least when I read Prabhupada's books, I always think, okay, what is the culture that Prabhupada wants to create? And I think this is important, because otherwise we get caught in, well, Western, Eastern, to Dodi or not to Dodi. That is the question, you know. But that's not the question. It's not dhoti or no dhoti. It's what is the culture that is going to help people the most, isn't it? Right. So, uh, I wrote Prabhupada a letter and I said, I said, Prabhupada, all the devotees are going out on Sankirtan and they're wearing shirt and pants, you know, dresses like that. They don't need to, it's artificial. Devotees felt, you know, you could approach people better if you're just dressed like them. They're not going to run away from you. And we thought, no, you got to be pure. If you're pure, you can wear a dhoti and a kurta, and people will be attracted. And so we did that. And it worked to some degree. And we wrote Prabhupada. We said, Prabhupada, we did it. 
don't have to dress just like everyone else. You can dress as a devotee and people will appreciate it. And we thought Prabhupada's going to say, I always knew it was true. I'm glad you broke through this barrier. You are the great heroes of the Sankirtan movement. That's, what we, that's actually why we wrote the letter, to get praised. Prabhupada knowing, he could, Prabhupada understands our mentality. Prabhupada said, um, yes, if you feel more comfortable in a dhoti than in ordinary clothes, then you can wear a dhoti. That was his answer. If you feel, you know, feel more comfortable in a dhoti. No, we're always, I feel more comfortable in Western dress and people don't think I'm weird. If you feel more comfortable wearing a dhoti, you can wear a dhoti. Um, so, um, it, to me, it's not about East, West, Vedic, American. It's about another culture. It's this culture of sattva-guna. You know, because, because from sattva-guna, you graduate to Krishna consciousness. You don't jump, you can't jump from tamagun, from the lowest modes to the highest. So, living, living a sattvic life, if you, if you read Prabhupada's books, you'll see so many things he's teaching us are to live a more sattvic life. And so, when you read Prabhupada's books, then you can think, okay, what does he want me to be? Not East, West, what does he want me to be as a devotee? And what kind of culture does, and how can I contribute to creating that culture in my family and in the temple? And I'll just end here and we'll take questions. At the wedding, Garuda Prabhu said something that I thought was was very, very important for us. I don't know if those of you who went picked up on it. Well, most of you weren't there, so. He said that when a couple comes together, they want to create a relationship which is full of affection, it's full of love, harmony, compassion, and so forth. And then as they create that, it expands out and they can share that with the rest of the world. So we we sometimes have a problem. We're trying to share with the rest of the world what we're not sharing at home. We're not doing it at home. And then we're doing it outside. That's a paradox, isn't it? As Bhakta Stephen said, do you know Bhakta Stephen? Dr. Stephen said, private victory before public, that was Stephen Covey, um, private victory before, before what's it? personal victory before public victory, private victory. You, know, you have to do it at home. And then, so you do it at home, you create the culture at home, you create the culture in the temple, and then you expand that. So that's what we're doing. We're expanding the culture that we create. And if we try to expand a different culture, then what we create at home in the temple, it doesn't really work that well. I once read a book by a motivational speaker. And he was saying, you have to follow what you teach because everyone in the audience is thinking when you say, you have to do this, you have to do that, you should be this, you should be that. They're all thinking, do you do that? Are you like that? You have to be humble, like me. I'm the most humble. You know, so I'm I'm speaking about humility. And you think is he humble? I'm speaking about sense control. Is he sense control? And and the problem is 
we have to speak about these things because they're in the books. So now it's time for a funny story. There is a devotee who used to be thinner than me. Um, and over the years, he expanded his service. Uh, and he became about as wide as he was tall. Right? And he was a sannyasi. It was like a he was like a uh, a pencil at one point, and he became bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's also funny, but he's a sannyasi. And there there's a purport in the Bhagavatam, and it was his turn to give class, and he hadn't read the verse before. And the purport in the purport it said, "Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was very concerned when he saw his disciples getting fat." that they were becoming sense enjoyers, just eating and sleeping. Now, what is he going to say? And who's going to believe him anyway? And he knew he was trapped. He couldn't say anything. So you know what he said? He's a funny guy. He said, no comment, and went to the next verse. Because <laughs> that's all he could do. So... Um, The most powerful form of communication is example. What you say, 7% of what I've said today, you will remember. And But it's having an effect on you because we're sitting in the room and you're feeling something. And if you just read this lecture, you would lose the emotion, right? So we affect people more by who we are, our presence, than what we say. But if we say something that we live, it has power. So I just wanted to share, these are thoughts that I've, I've had over the years. And uh, I've had uh, the experience over the years, time and time again, that my own realizations and my own practice are really essential as a teacher. Uh, to have any real effect on people. And so think about culture. You as an individual, what is your culture? What are the qualities you're developing? What is the the relationships, how your relationships are going? How you're um, progressing in terms of integrity, patience, determination, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth? That's your culture as an individual. How was that culture manifesting in your families? And how will that expand to the outside world? That's the way it works. And if if we don't have it in our own lives and we try to expand it, it's not sustainable. Because, you know, the Wizard of Oz will be exposed at some point. So uh, we can take some questions. And today is a fast day. Uh, we are celebrating the disappearance, disappearance, is that correct? Disappearance of Srila Gorakashore Das Babaji Maharaj. He was the spiritual master of Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And also very close with Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's father, Bhakti Vinod Thakur. He accepted Bhakti Vinod Thakur as, as his guru, Siksha guru. Um, he took the role of a Babaji, which means his basic service was to chant. He didn't go out publicly and preach, although many people came to him. It was very strict, very powerful. And uh, 
an eternal associate of Lord Chaitanya who descended to earth to purify it. And you can read his biography. It's very purifying. It's all about very high levels of renunciation. Don't get scared when you read it. Just imbibe the mood. Can't imitate the great souls, but he lived an extremely renounced life. Sometime he had, uh, some of his meals were Ganji's mud, that austere. And his bowl was a skull, because I guess he found a skull somewhere. Put Ganji's mud in a skull. Just to give you some idea of the kind of renunciation that he had. Okay, so if there are any questions or discussions. Hare Krishna, thank you for the wonderful class. Speaking about the modes of nature, I was curious about how do we like see where we're starting from because it seems like sometimes I can see myself acting in a particular way that is just kind of happening. And then I think about the verse from uh, where's the Bhagavad Gita that we're controlled by the modes of nature. I don't remember. But how, how do we know where we're starting from or is it that we're just in different modes according to what time of day it is? <laughs> where are we starting from? Prabhupada said, most people are in passion. No, he said, passion and ignorance predominates, predominates, but most people are in ignorance. That That's the culture we live in now. And so the idea is that the temple is transcendental. So uh, one time <laughs> Prabhupada said, if you're sitting in class and you're listening, just doing that puts you in the mode of goodness. Just sitting here listening, you're in the mode of goodness. Then, then Prabhupada said something funny. Similar to your question, a lot of times devotees would fall asleep in class. So, one time a devotee said, Prabhupada, what is the qualification of a Brahmin? Because a Brahmin is a mode of ignorance, excuse me, a mode of goodness. Prabhupada said, one who can keep his eyes open during class, he's a Brahmin. So, so the practices of bhakti are meant to keep you above the modes of passion and ignorance. But it, it's gradual. But there is a state in, in which you, you come to be situated in goodness, but the modes of passion and ignorance, because they exist, they will have some influence until you're more elevated. But the influence will be minimal. And so... You know, the perennial question, how do I know I'm advancing in Christian consciousness? Well, the symptoms of passion and ignorance are lust and anger, <coughs> greed, envy, and so forth. The way the, the way the Bhagavatam describes it is that as you progress in bhakti, the, inf, the, the influence of those qualities lessens because you're going up. You're starting to rise above it. And then when you're situated in goodness, because it's material goodness, it's not transcendental yet, you will feel those other modes, but they won't have, they're not strong enough anymore. It's like, you know, it's like a little one, one micro kilowatt of some, you know, shock. You feel a little ping, ping. It's nothing compared to a shock. So, you know, you, you feel like there's some envy, there's some lust, greed. But there's not enough to make a difference. It doesn't affect you. 
It's like it's just like someone tapping on your shoulder, as opposed to hitting a hammer on your knee, you know, or hitting a hammer on your shoulder. That's the way it's described. And then from that state, now you're steady, because the reason we're not steady is because the modes are affecting us. So, oh, that was an ecstatic class, and you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you go outside, and then boom, the mode of passion, and you're not situated in goodness enough, so then you get drawn into the mode of passion, and you, like, why? Why do I feel this way? That was such an amazing class, because I'm not situated in goodness. I was just situated in goodness during class while I was hearing, or or during the whole morning I was in goodness, but I'm still conditioned. So I get somewhat affected. Obviously less affected because I'm I'm doing my sadhana. But then gradually you'll come to that place where Bhagavatam says, Satvam stite, stite, satvam stite, situated in goodness. Then prasiddhiti. Now you're satisfied. And so when you're situated in goodness, no more yo-yo. You know, good today, bad tomorrow. You know, that's more of the condition in the, the beginning, you know. We're getting affected, one day not affected, a little affected, someday more affected. And so gradually by doing bhakti, you come to this point where you're really not affected, and it's called nishta, which means steady. And the reason you're steady is because there's passion and ignorance doesn't have much effect on you, so you just do your bhakti, steady. But until you come to that stage, it's a little unsteady. It's called anishtita. You have nishta and anishtita. That's the way the Bhagavatam describes it. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the best part comes after nishta. It's called ruchi. So the beauty of ruchi is that now the alarm goes off. Do I have to get up? I really don't want to. Now I have to chant my rounds. I'd rather go on Facebook, this and that. When ruchi comes, you actually want to do all those things. You're getting, you're deriving way more pleasure from that than from anything in this world. So this world basically has lost its attraction. It's it's gone because you have such a taste for Krishna consciousness. It's so sweet. And when you taste Krishna consciousness, it's so sweet. There's nothing that compares. So there's no attraction. You know, it's just like anything that's attractive, that's extremely attractive, Everything else pales in relationship to that. There's just like no comparison. You know? So, it's like that. So at the stage of Ruchi, that's when everything, the way Ruchi is described is, once you come to that platform, from there, everything in Krishna consciousness is easy. It's just downhill from there. There's no struggle anymore. Because everything you're doing is because you have a taste for it. It's, Krishna is attracting you. Before that, you've got to push from the back a bit. So nishta is that stage in between, where you're not being really pulled strongly down, but the ruchi is not, it's developing, but it's not strong enough to completely situate you transcendentally, or at least in the mode of goodness. So just be patient. And uh, Prabhupada said the safest place is, is kirtan, because when you're doing kirtan, you're safe, you're transcendental. You know? Or hearing, sitting in Bhagavatam. So as much as possible, hearing, chanting, being with devotees, um, that keeps you there. But someday you will come to that position. That's just where you'll be. You chant 64 rounds, you chant 16, it doesn't matter, you're there. So 
that's a good day to look forward to, I think. Ruchi. Ruchi means taste. And then it just gets better from there. Then it becomes attachment from taste, and you become attached to Krishna. And then you develop, um, you start to develop love. And um, all kinds of spiritual emotions develop. That means you're like, you're actually so attracted to Krishna. There's emotion, all kinds of emotion going on. When you're chanting and hearing. You know, I think it said Raghunath, Raghunath Das Goswami, he had a Bhagavatam, it was always wet. So why it was always wet? Because he was crying whenever you read it. So that's like Baba stage. Yeah. Prabhu, how do I know if I'm in the Baba stage? Is your Bhagavatam wet? No, it's not. No, you're not there yet. Sorry. Yes, we had a question? Oh, you had a question. No, 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 you have the mic. I thought. Okay. Now, first of all, thank you very much, Prabhuji, for the, uh, the couple of days of spiritual nourishment. We really welcome. were nourished. And as you said, like, you will be gone tomorrow or maybe the after tomorrow. When are you coming back again? As Gunnar Grimash would say, I'm coming back the first. And they'd say, the first of what? He'd say, the first chance I get. So that's the best answer I can give. I'm coming back on the first. That's up to Kalachanji, but even more than Kalachanji, my experience is up to the devotees because I, I don't always have control of where I go. It, it Somehow or other, I end up in different places and I think it's the desire of the devotees so that that way it happens. That's my experience anyway. Yeah. Thank so you. It's very up much. to you when I'm coming back. Oh, that the, that was the question when I'm coming back. So, if if you were to be asked, um, what is if if you were the in charge of this temple? <laughs> what? You're trying to get me in trouble now. <laughs> what would I do? No. Well, let's say if I was in charge of any temple, that would. Yeah. Yes, safer, yes, yeah. any temple. Then uh, what is, how would you define what are the top three cultural aspects well, that would... You know, top three are relationships, relationships, relationships. That's the top three. Yeah, That's where I would start. Because you know, because your Guru Maharaj just said, people come to spiritual life because they want community. And nobody on this planet wants to be judged or criticized. At least I haven't met anybody who does yet. So I will go with the nobody. We all want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated. We want to be loved, right? So that's how you build community. And if we can't do that, we're not sustainable. At least not as sustainable as we could be. So I would say relationship. Now, the interesting thing is, and we don't talk about this, and I did a workshop on this, and I think I'm, I'll do it again online. Not only do we have a relationship with our guru, with the deities, with one another, we have a relationship with ourselves. Like, How do you treat yourself? So I did a course on this, 
and everybody was saying, everyone had a realization, which is it's kind of perennial wisdom, how I treat myself is how I treat others. Right? Am I compassionate among myself? Am I tolerant with myself? Am I forgiving and so on? Then we are tolerant, compassionate, forgiving with others. And then um, we create that culture. People come, they feel that culture. Let me give you an example. In uh, one of my workshops, I don't know which one it is. I forget. But we do this. I want to, I want to teach devotees how powerful appreciation is as a emotion and um, how purifying it is. So we do an exercise where maybe you've done this before. I think, uh, I think Anutama Prabhu does this also. We do an exercise where you go around the room and you appreciate. The way I do the exercise is when you're appreciated, you only can say thank you. You can't say, oh, Prabhu, I'm really not what you say and I'm just, you know, if you really knew what I was like. No, no. We're, that's the P, that's the, the that's the, politically correct way, but the spiritually wrong way to do it. So you, at least you look humble, right? I, I got to look humble. No, no, Prabhu, I'm not really like that. That's being humble, PC humble. So this exercise is, you can't be PC humble. You have to say thank you, because we have to learn to accept the gifts that other people give us, and sometimes they give us the gift of, I really appreciate you for doing this, doing that. You have to say thank you. We don't want to say it, but it's a gift. And if I say, well, really, I'm not like that. You know, just talk to my wife. She'll really tell you what I'm like. You know. uh, that's like, here's your gift back. You know, so we don't want to do that. So in my exercise, you can't say anything but thank you. Now, later on, you can go to that devotee, but you can't say, really, Prabhu, you're wrong. I'm the most fallen soul in the universe. All you can do is glorify them. So I get to sit and watch this exercise go on, right? We did this exercise in China, which is a place where many of the kids were never even touched by their parents. It is like, it is like ice. Emotionally, it is like ice. Is that your experience, Dirashaya? A bit? Emotionally shut down? Yeah. Um, not all the kids were not touched, but it's not uncommon. And emotionally, they, they never learned to express emotion. So we did this exercise in China. They were crying. I'm like, why are they crying? No one, no one ever cried before doing this exercise. They never expressed this emotion of appreciation like this. It was bringing them to tears. But everywhere I've done this, you just sit in the room. There's this, you can feel the energy has shifted. It is like incredible. There's, you know, you should, like if, if you walked in that room and didn't know what was going on, as soon as you walk in, you would feel something's going on here, very positive. So then I joke with the devotees. I say, so now we're going to do an exercise where you're going to go around and criticize everybody. Who wants to do it? I believe if I said that first, we would get some takers. Yeah, I, I got an issue with Rasaraj. I want to do this exercise because I want to give him a piece of my mind. But... But once you do the appreciation, it completely rids the heart of that feeling. Because, and then I realized, just by doing this exercise, when you bring in a positive emotion, you can't bring in a negative emotion at the same time. They don't fit in your consciousness. And when you bring in the negative, the positive goes. 
So it's a really interesting realization to have. So I would, I would, um, I read this thing they did. You may want to do this here. I don't know. It's just a thought. It's such a beautiful idea. I read that in some company they have a huge, huge whiteboard, like, you know, 20 feet long and 10 feet high. And you write appreciations. When you see somebody doing something, you write an appreciation. So it's just, it just brings in the culture of appreciation. So I would bring in the culture of appreciation. We have to bring in the culture of trust because relationship is based on trust. I would bring in the culture of all the things that build relationships because that's the most important thing. Then when people learn about Krishna consciousness and associate with devotees who have these amazing relationships, everyone wants to have these relationships. Okay, that's one thing. But, as I said, it's got to start at home. Otherwise, it's a paradox. And that's the biggest challenge, I think. Starting at home. It's easy to be nice to everybody outside your home, isn't it? It's the hardest is to be nice in the people inside the home. And that's where we need it the most. And uh, personally, because I teach, I don't want to be a paradox. And I, um, I feel very strongly at this point. Very, very strongly that I, I asked it, okay, I'm going to ask you this question. If I had a video of your life for the last six months, would you be okay if I just show it right now on a, on a big screen, you know, on an IMAX screen? You know? we've, got, we've got the highlights of your life for the last six months. All the people you offended, all the arguments you had with your wife, you know, all the nasty things, that's all included with the good things. So, in the perfect world, we would say, sure, show it. Because I live in integrity. My life at home and my life in public is the same. That's the way it's supposed to be. Sure, show it. I'd be happy. I, I don't do anything differently at home than I do in public. That's, that's what I would stress. That also. That we bring integrity to our lives. That's what Prabhupada wanted. He, he, Prabhupada wanted to create a class of men who were Brahmins. Not only teachers, but people who live by example. And that's how he felt the world would change. You know, he said, I don't know the figure, five, it was either 1% or 5%. He said, if, if this small percent of people became Krishna conscious, that wasn't, that's enough. That's a tipping point. The, the world would then change. So, that's interesting because we're practicing it. So, we're the ones who would be in that small percentage who could make a change in the world just by being Krishna conscious. So <clears throat> I think the word is integrity. I would I would um, I would I would suggest that we just all be more conscious of these things. And more conscious of, of how we deal with one another. And more conscious of the qualities of a devotee and how, and how be conscious of how those qualities manifest or don't manifest. I think that's where it starts. And from that, um, you can build a community that people want to be part of and want to stay part of. When we do this appreciation exercise, I, I, I always think I, think, I think people walking outside the temple, they can actually feel something, you know, because the energy is so strong. And I always think, if we could create that energy in our movement that's going on during that exercise, 
I think we would like the whole the whole city would be. Can I join? You know, this I feel really good when I come here, isn't it? So people want community. They want trust. They don't want to be judged. They they don't want to be condemned. They want to be heard. They want to be felt. I think another thing I would teach devotees is it's all part of the relationship is how to listen without judging. It's very important. Not easy, but we have to learn to listen without judgment. You have a problem, you tell me. And we have to learn how to be confidential when we have personal problems. That's part of trust. I won't tell anybody. That's where I would start. I kind of feel like um, if I do anything more without doing that, it's going to backfire at some point. And um, I think there's many, many, many people. This is, this is another realization. There are many, 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 many people who when they read Prabhupada's books or they hear our philosophy, they say, yes, this is it. Um, there is a professor, scholar of religion. He said, "You, your religion has the best philosophy of any religion. He just said objectively, but you don't have the best relationships. That was his, that was his observation. There's a paradox there. You have the best philosophy, but not the best relationship. I think the problem is we think we have the best philosophy, so we think because we have the best philosophy, automatically everything we do is perfect. And it doesn't work that way. It's just a philosophy in a book. You have to practice it. And so I think that was a mistake that we made. Because we have the perfect philosophy, we think we're living it. You might be, but you may not be. Right? So that's what I would work on. I mean, that's what I do work on. Wherever I have influence, that's what I do. I created a uh, document of culture, the culture I want to create. And I... and. And the reason I created that culture was for the exact reason. It was actually when I went to Chaupati, I could understand there's a culture here. It was obvious. Every devotee you talked to it was like it was like you're in Walmart or something. As soon as you ask somebody, "Where is the? Where are the bananas?" They'll walk you across the whole store, and it takes like eight minutes to get there. And they go, "They're right here." That's their culture. That's what they're trained to do. So, like when I was in Chowpat, it was like all the devotees you talked to it was like talking to the same person. They all treated you in the same way. So I was thinking, oh, they've been trained here. And then I did a forgiveness workshop. Usually takes like two days before people finally let go. Uh, there, it took an hour and a half. Like the workshop was like, okay, we can end it now. And I said, why is it that this happened so fast? They said, well. Radhanaswami is all he talks about is relationships and forgiveness and respect and humility. So we we have the culture. I've gone to temples after 18 hours. Still, there were people who couldn't let go. They didn't have the culture, unfortunately. So I thought the best thing I could do is create a culture. Now the hard part is creating it. On paper, it was not that hard. Um, we spent time but getting it. But here's the thing. Here's the beauty. When you create a culture, then everyone who becomes part of the organization automatically adopts the culture. They don't even have to be told what it is because they see everybody doing it. And here's the joke. I read this. This is so funny. 
What do companies do? They put their mission statement on the wall, beautifully framed and like that. And here's the joke. If you want to make sure that all the employees in your company don't know and live the mission, put the mission statement on the wall. That's the best way to ensure nobody gets it. And, and, and so what do they mean? They mean the leaders have to live it, it has to be talked, it has to be modeled consistently, and then everybody gets it. So when you create the culture, then when the new people join, you don't even have to tell them what it is because they see it. Here's another problem. This is, this is real life. This is Mahatma's reality TV. I went to a temple and it was not being managed well. It was being managed a little dictatorial by someone who was kind of like, okay, I don't like you, you're out. And they said, we really need a workshop on cooperation. And I said, I don't want to give it. They said, why? I said, because in this temple, you don't have the culture, it won't make any difference. They said, no, please, please, please do it. I reluctantly did it. The evening after I, after I did it, there was some big problem in the temple where people were being asked to leave and this and that. You, you can't educate against a culture. So when you have the culture, it's easy to educate. But you know, if you don't have the culture and you educate, it doesn't work because it, it's not the way we live. It's not the way we think. So as a teacher, I've done this many times. I've tried to educate against the culture. It's extremely difficult. And when I went to Chaupati, um, I also gave another class. I think they asked me to give a, a class on forgiveness. And then one of the, I don't know, it was Muffetlal or some senior, Krishna Chandra or someone. You know, he was, at that point, that was like 15 years ago when he was elder. And he came up to me and said, everything you talk about, Maharaj is constantly talking about this all the time. That's how you create culture. So he's talking about it, talking about it, modeling it, talking about it. Then the new people come. They just cooperate. You know, we need more cooperation. I'm going to give a big talk on cooperation. No, just cooperate. <laughs> That's better than talking about it. Just model it as a leader. That's my experience. So That's what I would work on. I would start with the leaders. And when, when, when they model it, it's easy for other people. And, when it, and that, now we have another problem. This is, this is one of the worst problems, and I think the greatest disservice to Srila Prabhupada is if someone comes to ISKCON and they don't learn the culture, but they actually develop habits which were worse than they brought with them. For example, let's say you came to ISKCON and there was a lot of disruption, controversy, and criticism about whatever. And um, you started becoming a little critical uh, because other people were critical and you were getting into criticizing. And you say, you know, I never criticized this much before I joined ISKCON. That is the greatest travesty. That is the greatest disservice we could ever do to Prabhupada. That, that they join ISKCON and they learn something which is entirely against what we are teaching. And they've sat in the class and they've heard, don't do it. But their best friends do it, so they do it. Or they bring that culture in and they didn't neutralize that culture. We didn't help them neutralize the culture. Okay, I have a question for you. Uh, how many classes have you heard? Uh, 
about not criticizing. More than the ten fingers on you. If you've been around ISKCON, you've heard 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. You've heard a lot. Did that help you stop criticizing? Um, if it was a good class, it helped you for three days. If it was an okay class, it probably got you through the till the evening before you said something nasty. And if it was a bad class, it didn't last very long. That's my experience. You agree, Rasarash? I've got, you know, my little chart. That was a good class. I probably won't criticize till tonight. <laughs> what if you created a culture in which if you criticize, nobody would listen to you and just say, sorry, Prabhu, I don't, I can't listen to that. It's not, it's not what we do around here. What would happen? You don't need any class on not criticizing because nobody's going to listen to you anyway. And you would get the message. That's why culture is so powerful. And that's why it's so hard to teach if you don't create culture simultaneously. Because the teaching doesn't do, is, is part of it, but it's not everything. At least that's my experience. And a lot of people in the corporate world understand this. A lot don't, and a lot do. And so they create cultures where better relationships can go, go on, where people are happier. And they, they work better when they're happier. Big books on people work better when they're happier. Duh. You know. <laughs> like you're you're a genius for figuring it out that you get a Nobel Prize for that, you know, and your book's a number one seller, like, hello, of course. Is that okay? Yeah. Now the next question is when are you coming back to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not invited to come back to do that. But anyway, anything else? Today's a fast day, so there's no breakfast. So you don't have to worry that someone's eating your breakfast. You may have to worry that someone's eating your lunch if you come late. But yes, are they going to make enough prasadam for everyone for lunch? Yes, I hope so. What time is lunch? No. 12.45, okay. okay. We have some guests, I just want to check. Okay, we had some, someone else has the microphone? No. Come at 12.30, you come at 12.45, there may be nothing left. I hope not. I hope they make enough. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for the class, Prabhu. And I don't know. I think yesterday oh. the. Okay. Yeah, I can hear now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it might be a different question, not for general people. Um, for a sensitive person, like how would how to take the criticism? And it, first, it, it hurt, and then it's just the next reaction would be okay, stay away from them. But how do we maintain the relation? And how do we maintain the, the relationship with someone who hurt us? Yeah. Yeah. Who, yes. Okay, you got another hour. 
I'll, I'll tell you something that, that maybe will get you thinking. A lot of times they don't hurt us, but we are hurt. That's, that's a thought to think about, that we have a sensitivity. And, you know, have you ever had like a bruise on your shoulder and if you just touch it, it's extremely painful? And someone says, hey, nice to see you. Ah! And you're screaming, like, what did I do? I just patted you. So some of us have those sensitivities. So, so that's one thing. Um, Srila Prabhupada said in a letter, he said, we should learn to forgive and forget the minor offenses of others because he said, wherever there's two people together, there's bound to be a misunderstanding. And especially if one's a man and one's a woman. It, the the, the um, odds go way up just because they're different by nature. It's, it's easier to misunderstand. So... The people that hurt you may also be very nice people. Well, you know, and I think, I think the thing that we have to to see is the intention. What was the intention? Is it was the person intending to harm you? Probably not. And maybe there's a bad chemistry or a misunderstanding. I ideally, Prabhupada wanted us to be. To, to be mature enough to be able to process it without being overly disturbed, especially angry, resentful, because though these things harm us. But I'll give you I'll give you one thought that I shared uh, Friday night, which is very interesting. It's a different way of answering this question than I normally answer, but it might help you. We were giving a class on self-compassion. And I asked them, I think I mentioned this yesterday, how would things be different if you had more self-compassion? And they came up with many things. And then I offered something from my own life. Because, I, because I've taught about forgiveness for many years, I've had a lot of time to think about it. And I came to a point where I found it very easy to forgive and also very easy to not have to forgive because I wouldn't allow myself to be disturbed in the first place, so I wouldn't have to forgive. That, that's, that was my conclusion after teaching forgiveness, that it's, it's such a toxic emotion, resentment. It's so degrading and so painful to hold on to it. I don't want to hold on to it. I just, so if somebody hurts me out of self-preservation, out of self-compassion, I don't allow myself to get upset because it's not good for me. So I was telling them, if you have more of a consciousness of self-care, then when you get disturbed, you will let it go because you realize, I don't want to carry this with me. It's harming me. And someone will say, but they did this and that to you and you should get back to them and take them to court. You say, no, I love myself too much to put myself through all of that. Plus, getting back at them is going to degrade me. So having more self-care can actually help you become more tolerant because you don't want to go down that tamagoon rabbit hole by holding on, by being disturbed, by being angry. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's give an example. This person disturbs you today. And if it's very deep and you're very upset, 
what are you going to be thinking about during japa tomorrow? Well, let's give the audience a guess. We'll give you three guesses. Okay. Pick a name of that person who hurt you. You just make up a name. A. His name is A. I thought his name was Joe Patel. Uh, anyway, let's, let's call him Joe Patel because there's so many Joe Patels in Dallas, we won't know which one. So, his name is Joe Patel hurt you and, and, and really, really hurt you deeply. What is she thinking about tomorrow when she chants Japa? Radha, okay, here are your three choices. Radha, Krishna, or Joe Patel. <laughs> Raise your hand if it's Joe Patel. Yeah, okay, we got unanimous, yeah. All right. If I really want to care for my spiritual life, when I chant Japa, I don't want to meditate on Joe Patel, unless he's a pure devotee. And I want to meditate on him with love and affection. I don't want to meditate on Joe Patel. Out of compassion for myself, I'm going to let this go. Because this will destroy me. There's something else. It doesn't just destroy you spiritually. It just actually destroys you physically. Anger, resentment, hurt. It's destroying us physically. Uh, and more. there's more and more evidence of that. I mean, the Chinese knew that. The Ayurvedic physicians, they knew that. But there's more and more modern evidence of that. So it, it's just in every way it's bad. So if there's more self-love, it can help us a lot letting things go. Because I just, you know, he deserves to be punished. Yeah. Um, I love myself too much not to forgive him. That's my mantra. So someone says, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven, but I deserve to forgive him because I love myself too much not to forgive him. Right? So that can help a lot. And I think if you study our philosophy, you can understand subtly that's what's being taught, that you have to take care of your spiritual life. So... We're going, to have, we're going to have to learn how to let go of things. Now, maybe I'll never have a relationship with Joe Patel again. That's okay. I'm just not going to hate him. I don't want to go to my grave hating Joe Patel. I won't miss him if I don't see him again. I just don't want to hate him. Because I may have to come back in another life to finish up my business of hating Joe Patel. It's true. It's right there in the Bhagavatam. If... You don't let it go. Like Daksha, he was angry with Shiva. He didn't let all that anger go. He had to come back because he didn't divest himself of all that anger. Then he got angry with Narada Muni. And the Acharya said he had to come back because he didn't purify himself of that anger. So, you know, watch out. Watch out for Joe Patel. That'll be the name of the class today. Watch out for Joe Patel. He's dangerous. <laughs> now, we can take it up another level. I don't know if you're ready for this, but let's take it up another level. They say, hate the sin, not the sinner, right? How about this one? Hate the sin and love the sinner. Let's take it up one notch, right? That's Srila Bhakti Siddhanta. I desire only the greatest good for my worst enemy. That's Krishna consciousness. So we ask, how can I 
let go of my forgiveness, let go of my resentment, let go of my anger. And Srila Bhakti said onto Singh, it's not even about let going. Just ask the question, how can I love this person? How can I love Joe Patel? That's the name of today's class. How can I love Joe? No, and yeah, how can I love Joe Patel? That's the, that's the best answer, yeah. So that's what you can think. Okay, I'm upset, but how can I not go down that dark rabbit hole into envy and anger and resentment? And how can I actually appreciate him for who he is, for the good in him? And how can I understand why I'm upset? Maybe he didn't do anything wrong, and it's just me. You know, I have a, you know, I have a black and blue mark. It's just in my heart right now. That's what it means when we say we're sensitive. I, I need more appreciation. I mean, it's human need. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but to be aware that it, it could be, um, make your life difficult. You know, if you walk around with too many black and blue marks, eventually someone's going to bump into you and it's going to hurt. Hare Krishna. So today's class is entitled Love Joe Patel and Heal Your Black and Blue Marks. Well, that's the second half of the class. First half of the class is get a life. <laughs> with, get a life with culture. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for coming. It's nice to be with you. Shri the Prabhupada ki jai. Go Premanandi. Hari Hari Bo. Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutare. Shri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami.